of Chicago. I'm Megan, daughter of Michael and Lisa. And, and we, we are Burdened with Glorious, glorious Podcast. Welcome back to the show where we talk about our favorite trickster god, Loki, now streaming on Disney+. Plus. Now folks, uh, as of we are recording right now, there are a whole lot of fireworks out there because it is the eve of Steve Rogers' birthday. Um, happy Steve Rogers Day to all who observe. Have a wonderful Sunday if it if it you know if it doesn't really fall in your belief system. Mm-hmm. Either that or Valkyrie is taking a very very long time to make a dramatic entrance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is a lot of lightning out here in New York City as well right now. I'm I'm actually recording this. I'm I'm not at home right now. Like it, it's my computer setup and everything, but I'm I'm actually on a nanny gig right now. I am overlooking the Williamsburg waterfront in the apartment of a very nice Norwegian family. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm okay. yeah, they were kind enough to let me record here. So you know, thank you, very nice Norwegian family. <laughs> and there are tons of fireworks right outside my window. Ironically, uh, Navy Pier usually gets like the big show, but I guess because of like fear of overcrowding. Uh, they're not doing that this year, uh, tonight or tomorrow, and so, like, all of the far-off, uh, Westland suburbs are doing their own thing, which I can, like, see if I had, like, a telescope. There's been a little bit going on out on the waterfront tonight, um, but the main thing I noticed was that, you know, the party boats that you can hear all the way from inside a building <laughs> facing the East River are back. East, you know, nature's healing. Yes, party boat is in the house tonight. <laughs> uh, you know, I have to say this episode of Loki, probably my favorite so far. Like, so much was established there was so much character growth, and it ended in an, oh, you cannot just leave us there note. <laughs> yeah, I, and, you know, and it, and, you know, I, I, I have a confession to make about this episode. And, you know, I know that Maureen mentioned at the beginning of our, of our first episode that one of the reasons that we first became friends was that I appeared to be completely disengaged from the particular type of Loki fangirling that was going on, um, you know, especially in 2012 at the time. And the thing is, is that I'm going to be honest, this, this episode was the first time I feel like I've, I've actually gotten it in any way. <laughs> and some of that is also just, you know, when you, when you spend 10 years thinking of a character as your sitcom arch nemesis, you're not really like, I mean, even if you've basically been writing them as a love interest for one of your friends, you know, you, you still don't tend to really, you know, think, think of them that way. But you know what, there were a couple times this episode where I was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess they are taking advantage of the fact that he looks good in this. I, you know, I, I, I suddenly get it a little bit. And then it hit me like, well, you know, of course I'm getting it this episode, this series in general, because it kind of hit me all of a sudden that, you know, in the absence of any of the MCU's other leading men, that, you know, this this is the first time they've ever really taken any advantage of the fact that Tom Hiddleston is a good-looking man. And yeah. it's really the first time that they've actually, you know, set out to make the character appealing to anybody who's not an inveterate Loki fucker. Way to call me out, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> look, 
look, I, I deeply respect you guys. You're just operating on a plane that I, I, I'm just, <laughs> I, I can now see this, you know, if I, you know, there's probably some kind of Dr. Strange joke here, but I only saw that movie once. So I, I don't know how to fully phrase this. It's like, I, I can, I can see where you guys are standing from, even if I'm still just kind of like, Oh, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm officially one of those people who just like, you know, leans out of a balcony and waves a flag for a few minutes when the parade's going by. <laughs> like that's, that's kind of where I'm at. It's just like, okay, I, I see you. I hear you. I'm here for you. I, I understand you a little bit better now, even if I'm not, really there with you yet (laughs) oh my god uh yeah so for me I'm kind of like the exact opposite in that for about yeah I want to say 10 at least nine years I've been having this idea of like various fanfic of uh Loki uh and romance uh only my ship is with uh him and Darcy, and it's been so long, I still kind of find it crazy that those two have never once interacted yet, despite being part of the same, like, sub-franchise. So I kind of just, like, waited all this time, like, kind of, like, resigned the fact, okay, I guess Loki's just never gonna get a love interest at all, because he would have had one by now, since it's been, like, a decade. And so, to see him actually have, like, a legitimate romantic pairing, and I'll get to later uh, a certain article I read. It's kind of like, yeah, it's literally Christmas in July for me. Like, after uh, (laughs) reading, after seeing this week's episode and reading uh, the corresponding articles to it, I just feel like I have all the emotions of a 14-year-old who just finished reading Twilight. Oh, if you can happen to hear these adorable little noises in the background, it's because this very nice Norwegian family has got the cutest little dog. And there was a firework outside, and I think it disturbed him a little bit. So if you happen to hear those noises, that's all that's going on. (laughs) It is really interesting to see how this side character is treated now that he's suddenly the main character. A mutual of mine on Twitter actually made a joke about the fact that, you know, this was the first time they had ever really bothered to show any skin with him in the <laughs> first episode with the, uh, with, you know, the, the clothes zapping thing, which is absolutely horrific now that we consider that that happened to a child, that it, that yes. has happened to millions of children, but, um, we'll get to the actual plot in a moment. Um, you know, she actually made a comment about, like, so now that we know what he's built like under there does does he officially finally qualify as a himbo (laughs) i i don't know i i think i think a himbo still i think you got to be meteor you 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 know you got to be one of the cronks of the world to really qualify for himbo status yeah the thing about tom hiddleston's physique is he's sneaky ripped like you don't expect his frame (laughs) to have that much muscle but then he just takes his shirt off and you're like oh okay then I mean, as, as my friend Jess, who is also our transcriptionist, so hi Jess, I know you are literally going to have to listen to this at one point, um, you know, her, her comment on it was, because, you know, she was still kind of like, you know, I, I told her today that, like, oh, this is the first time I feel like I've ever even, like, intellectually gotten it, where, you know, where Loki in particular is concerned, 
and she's still not really there herself, but she did make a comment about like, yeah, I guess he is a bit thicker these days. <laughs> <laughs> Although she spelled it with a K, so I, I oh, don't think she okay. was even trying to be funny. I think that she just meant, oh, well, I mean, he is a little bit more built. <laughs> Although that might also be just the fact that they have now had him in this shirt for like, you know, <laughs> for like three episodes. So I guess maybe it, maybe it's just more that you can tell. I don't know. So I was so certain that the events and long-term fallout from the snap in Infinity War, that would have to be the darkest uh, thematically the MCU ever got. Like, nothing outside of Thanos' actions could possibly be, the longer you think about it, the more horrifying the ramifications get. And then Loki comes along and is all, hold my mead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there have been a few other things that have happened in this, uh, in the MCU that I've, I've definitely thought about as being just slow burn horrible, but they were definitely all still along the same lines as, as Thanos' whole thing. Um, you know, something that, uh, Something that I had thought about is that as much as the first Thor movie makes a big deal out of Loki wanting to destroy uh, Jotunheim, or sorry, excuse me, Jotunheim, that like, I, I briefly use like the actual mythological <laughs> <laughs> pronunciation, I'm sorry. Um, you know, they make that out to be, a, uh, you know, obviously that's a very, very bad thing. Like, Loki, that is genocide, honey. Um, but, but you know what? Honestly, even if they were also horrible, and it's made very clear that they were, so you know, so was the so was Asgard basically deciding and just being like, hey, guess what? We're going to condemn you guys to die slowly over millennia because that seems to kind of be what was done when they took the casket. Yeah. Um, but you know what? On a grand cosmic scale, then we have the TVA. Yeah. So I had an inkling that the TVA was untrustworthy from episode one, but by episode four, they are just unequivocally framed as villains because this episode forced you to think about the whole processing Loki went through in the beginning. And that would be utterly humiliating at best and existentially traumatizing at worst. And they do that to children implied millions of children. <laughs> this episode decided to go ahead and reveal that as far as we know, Sylvie really is a Loki variant. However, she was plucked from Asgard as a child by the TVA for very unclear reasons, but quite frankly, it kind of appears to be because she was simply too happy and well-adjusted to be a Loki. Too good for this sinful timeline. After seeing what happened to Sylvia as a little girl, it really cemented that there was a young Peter Quill who went through the same process and was zapped out of existence because he decided to stay at the hospital like his mother wanted him to. There was a Eric Killmonger who never became a Killmonger, who was zapped out of existence because he was always allowed to live in Wakanda. There was a Bucky Barnes pruned because he was too unhealthy to enlist, and a Steve Rogers pruned because he was too healthy and a Natasha Prude for just having normal childhood. There's so much made in the first episode of the TVA, you know, ensuring that Loki exists as a villain in order to make sure others shine brighter. 
But at this point, it becomes clear that they're also forcing a lot of trauma on the timeline simply because, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I have a personal theory that by episode five or six, when we finally do find out who's really in charge of the TVA and why there has to be a single timeline, it will probably be for something extremely petty, such as, well, this timeline tells the best story. Well, something that I've started thinking about in terms of the timeline situation is just the fact that they have to deal with variants and just the fact that they actually, when they show the Nexus event in this episode, it actually is already veering off of another timeline. That would seem to suggest that that actually is happening all the goddamn time, no pun intended. (laughs) But the fact is, is that for the very mechanism of the TVA to work, there have to be... That, you know, they make it sound like Nexus events are actually relatively rare, but they clearly aren't. And, yeah, as WandaVision has shown us, like, uh, before Loki even started premiering, like, it strongly implied that Wanda created a Nexus event of uh, making her own little world. So who knows uh, what consequences that'll have. That the antidepressant commercial in what was it episode seven? Yeah, I think it's, so. It's literally called Nexus. Mm-hmm. Nexus, because the world doesn't revolve around you, or does it? <laughs> so, uh, back in I think our episode two of this show, I came up with the theory that uh, Mobius was kind of like in a Carol Danvers situation, and now I can say I have been proven right. I mean, my personal favorite, so, I mean, obviously at this point, if you're listening along and you've been watching the show, and even if you're not, and you're one of my handful of friends who listens to this because they're nice, even in the last episode, we still talked about um, the revelation that the entire TVA is staffed by variants. And my personal favorite thing, and I I wish I was smart enough to... uh, to bring this up myself or to have noticed it, but um, something that really stuck out to me when somebody reported it on Twitter was that at the moment where B-15 actually comes back in, and notice that we don't actually see B-15's life before she was part of the TVA, but when she comes back in to assist Loki and Sylvie, it turns out that... um, she's accompanied by the theme that they use for the uh, Dora Milaje. And notice how her hair looks is still short, but definitely looks like some time has passed if she uh, initially had shaved her head as the Dora Milaje. That's, that's true. I mean, especially because, you know, Wunmi Misaku does not normally have hair that short as far as I've seen. You know, she, it, she didn't look like this in Lovecraft Country. Oh, that's right. Huh. Yeah, she was Ruby. Yeah, oh, that's right! Yes, okay, yeah. I remember that because uh, Lovecraft Country uh, filmed a couple of scenes in Chicago, and uh, oh, yeah. back in the day I had a friend who had, like, a vintage clothing shop, and they used some of uh, her clothes for extras. Oh, wow. Yeah. Speaking of wow... <laughs> <laughs> so, apparently there's a story that uh, Mobius is never going to say wow in this series, but we got very close with him saying, how? (laughs) I 
mean, you know, you know what? You can't. You can't fault Owen Wilson for talking the way he talks. Okay. <laughs> I you know. know. If any, if anything, I think it's actually incredibly interesting and surprising that they cast him so far against type in this. Oh yeah, no, it's just fascinating how like they didn't even try. Like they deliberately like made him look older than he is, and I still wonder like why exactly. Yeah, yeah, especially especially because you know at first when i saw it i was just like oh yeah i haven't seen what i haven't seen what owen wilson looks like in a while but you know, he's still blonde see... like he's well, yeah, no, near that no, and, then, and then they they and then you know they had the interview and like the promotional clips and stuff and you know there he is blonde and piled with a million scarves and <laughs> wearing interesting hats and it's just like oh okay so he does still look like that yeah so uh Megan, what do you think uh, Mobius's favorite Eastern philosophy is? Oh no, this is. Dao. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, okay, wait, wait. I got one more. What is Mobius's favorite 80s one hit wonder? Oh no. Bow. Wow. Wow. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, you know what? If you if you kept up with the new wave scene, you would understand why I didn't know <laughs> think of them because they actually had a few more hits if you just happened to be in that one particular scene. You know, I although I think actually my two favorite riffs on the fact that Owen Wilson is in this show are both the ongoing joke of um having him wake up in his own little pruned alternate world surrounded by variants of himself, except it's like Hansel and Lightning McQueen and, and, you know, and is his name, his name's Jedediah, right? The cowboy from Night at the Museum? I don't know. I've never seen those movies, but... Okay, okay. <laughs> I feel, oh my god, it's, it's like Jedediah or Jeremiah, I'm gonna be really disappointed, you know, but the, the one that is basically a confirmed, uh, in a confirmed relationship with a with a tiny Roman centurion played by Steve Coogan. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the point is, is, is Mobius wakes up and they're all standing over him, like you know, and, and Lightning McQueen. They're about to drive away in Lightning McQueen. Um, uh, I. But my other favorite riff on Owen Wilson being in this show was um, before it had even premiered. <laughs> just the um, screenshot of him saying, "Now, as we all know." Loki uh, died during the events of Avengers Endgame, but what this show supposes is, what if he didn't? <laughs> 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 Which, I, if I remember correctly, that's a Royal Tenenbaums riff. So. Oh, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, was, and another. But what this show supposes is, what if he didn't? <laughs> another one of uh, his alternate lives that Mobius saw was, uh, I think it was a badger from Fantastic Mr. Fox. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you know what? They're from so many variations. I, I Honestly, I think at this point, it's largely just people wanting him to wake up and see Lightning McQueen. So, like, several people have... Uh, <laughs> several people have done variations on this joke. It, it just seems to be that, like, the one consistent is Lightning McQueen. Mm. Who, you know, as I mentioned, the, you know, the other great part about this is that, you know, I, I really hope that as they just continue to cast more non-Anglo actors that they just start looping in more and more Lightning McQueen dub voices from around the world because, you know, Daniel Brühl was uh, his German dub voice. 
I and love he's how you, this Zemo. is the second time you mentioned that on this show because that's the fact people need to know. <laughs> it's you know it's it's news you can use. <laughs> <laughs> I I just at this point that would be that would be like the funniest thing they could do is just you know keep bringing in more Lightning McQueen voices. You know they they do a lot of dubs. Okay, but now I'm just imagining, like, uh, now I'm imagining all of, like, the foreign actors and the equivalent of Larry the Cable Guy in the, the MCU. <laughs> I, all of, the, you know, they, they do they do a big callback to the, the portal bit at the end of uh, Endgame, except it's all the international voice actors for Lightning McQueen in the movie Cars. <laughs> Yeah, going back to the concept of, like, waking up and seeing all these alternate timelines of yourself, uh, I definitely agree uh, with uh, film crit Hulk, his uh, main criticism that the very last scene should have been the last scene, but it did not deserve to be a mid credit scene, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, oh no, no, that was, I mean, that is, it's one of the, situ you know, Marvel... Let me begin this. Oh yeah, you know, Marvel post-credit scenes are usually teasers for something else, or you know, or just or basically like just a reward for like... sitting, a reward for staying in your seat. But this is actually fairly plot important, and also, also there's there's an alligator dressed as Loki. Like, why would you hide that from people? Why yes. would you not <laughs> share that with the world? And it has Richard E. Grant in in the. Kermit the Frog Collar 60s Loki costume. I can cross that off my bingo card! Actually, I can cross two <laughs> things off my bingo card. The golden Kermit collar and Kid Loki in the same scene. Holy cow. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I mean, we also have a Kid Loki. Was that on your card? I can't it remember. It was! It actually was! I th I've definitely gotten at least a full bingo by now. <laughs> well, I mean, and then on top of that, uh, now, you know, the other variant standing there, I'm, I'm very interested in seeing what this guy's deal is, because you'll notice that he's unusually large and buff for a Loki, but he does not look at all like what we've talked about with the, uh, you know, with, with, you know, buff, bad masculinity, 70s Loki. I mean, you know, he's definitely like the most Viking looking of them. He's got, um, except his outfit is very Siege Loki inspired. But he's also carrying a hammer. And I'm almost wondering if, you know, is they, apparently he's credited as boastful Loki, but I'm kind of like, you know, is, is Deobai Oparai playing, um, you know, some kind of Thor Loki hybrid? Because he, he honestly looks more like a variant Thor than like a variant Loki. True, although there were uh, parts in the comic, uh, like Agent of Asgard, which I will never stop plugging on the show, uh, where Loki was <laughs> worthy to uh, hold Molnir, even if it was for a brief time that everybody forgot about soon after. True, true. It's it's more just that the guy's whole vibe screams Thor more than Loki. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I... This is kind of a this is a kind of a diversion, but I did just uh, Google because I, if I remember correctly, they I, I remembered thinking that they had cast um, the actor to play Loki on uh, the American Gods series, 
a little bit with MCU Loki in mind, like at least that that's kind of an association that you would already have with the character. And looking at this, do you remember those those like blender websites where it could put two people's faces together that yeah. they that you know used to be really big like you know ten years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he looks like if you did that with Tom Hiddleston as MCU Loki and like Adam Nagaitis as Mister Hickey on the Terror. <laughs> that that is literally what he looks like. Oh, I, I don't want to do another big Terror diversion, especially because I know that there is actually a perfectly coherent way for me to bring it up later in the episode without it being a giant diversion but yeah no that that's that is what this man looks like oh my god (laughs) (laughs) so the linchpin of this week's episode was loki and sylvie and them really having a change of perception with each other because last episode they were like at each other's throats and they they just did not know where they could trust each other and then the episode ended with them realizing they could. And with this episode, it had them so certain that they were looking at certain death. And that was when Loki realized, oh, this woman represents who I could have been if I was better. She just has, like, a type of innocence about her that I don't have, and I'm just drawn to that and with Sylvie uh, the change for her was she's used to being in apocalypses like she said uh, a beautiful line that sounded something straight off Doctor Who of I grew up at the ends of a thousand worlds so she always kind of expected that she would die uh, in an apocalyptic scenario but the one thing she didn't count on was that she would do so holding the hand of a friend and apparently uh their relationship is enough to cause the canon police to swoop down and arrest them both yeah i mean the thing is is that i genuinely at this point i don't know what sylvie's what what the specifics of sylvie's feelings are supposed to be other than suddenly appreciating him and recognizing him as probably one of the only people who's actually you know, sat with her and been kind to her and reaffirmed that there was something in her worth existing. I still, I don't know exactly what her feelings are, but I, I do definitely understand the straight up Loki's in love interpretation. Oh yeah, for sure. Like it only, it did not take long at all, but I'm definitely a hashtag team Silky fan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, normally normally on this show, we try really hard to avoid criticizing, um, you know, certain fandom positions that we don't agree with. But in, in this case, I really have to just go for it and say, there is no such thing as self-cessed. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. Okay. So... For all of you folks out there who think that Loki and Silky as a romantic couple is akin to incest in any way, number one, there is only one character played by Tom Hiddleston in a toxic incestuous relation with a woman who looks like him, and it ain't the Loki (laughs) show, it's Crimson Peak. And two, the TVA do not want them to be together and think them being even the slightest bit romantic with each other will destroy everything they've worked for, and they're the bad guys. Yeah, it's it's just, I, 
and I'm seeing so many. I've, I've been seeing so many comments along the lines of like, well, you know, they, you know, they might as well be fraternal twins or something like that. And the thing is, is that you know what? I mean, for one thing, I'm kind of suspect that if you're showing up in different timelines, that that's kind of impossible anyway. And you know, and I mean, one of the other, pardon me, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, our non-binary friends, um, one of the other Lokis is a fucking alligator. <laughs> You, you cannot use the identical genetics argument here. Like it, like I, I'm sorry, you're grasping for straws. Because probably because you're mad that he wants to kiss Sylvie and not Mobius at this point. And for one thing, you know what? I, you know, I think it was actually mentioned in the description for the show, or at least in some of the promotion, that you know he was going to have a male love interest in this as well. You know, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of it he is like confirmed to be in love with both of them. But also at the same time, it's like you know, I, I'm sorry, keep your biphobia to yourselves for one thing. And for another thing, I don't know how much harder this show can possibly hit you over the head with the fact that Sylvie is not the same person. She barely went through even any of the, I mean, I don't know if she actually went through any of the same formative experiences now that I think about it, because there's a very strong implication, judging by the fact that, you know, she's playing innocently with fantasies about saving Asgard, that not only was it that she was born a girl, but it also seems to be that, um, you know, that she just wasn't fucked up enough to be a Loki. I mean, as my friend Anne put it, you know, she was arrested for a first degree being well-adjusted and normal. <laughs> Which, you know, and it does kind of tie back to a conversation that Maureen and I had a few weeks ago before the show came out when all we, when we could kind of, I think it was right after we knew that the variant was a woman, but we, and we were kind of trying to discuss, you know, some of the implications of that. And one of the comments that I actually made at that point was that, but you know, I don't, I don't know if a, I don't know if a, if a woman would have necessarily had quite the kind of bad, you know, implied upbringing that he had, (laughs) whether, you know, whether or not, um, you know, you interpret Sylvie as essentially being magic trans or not. And honestly, I think that this goes that way, even if she is, you know, one of the big reasons that, you know, Loki was kind of looked on as being kind of shifty and weird is just, you know, traditionally magic is not something men do in Asgard. And so, you know, so I know that Sylvie was pretty much self-taught, but, you know, if she was already doing that as, as a little girl, then that, you know, that wouldn't have been met with nearly the same, wow, okay, that's a, that's a creepy hobby to have, you know, and it, and considering that she also knew she was adopted, although I do think it's interesting that we don't, we still don't actually know the full arrangements of that adoption. Now that I think about it, you know, something that something that I've thought of a few times when getting really irritated with people who are saying it's basically incest is that it hit me that you know, for all we know, there's going to be a big reveal that, you know, maybe in her timeline, you know, for all we know. Laufey was the king of Asgard. <laughs> yeah, you know? I definitely think it's important that the only the, the only flashback we've seen of Sylvie, it's her and her alone. We don't know who her parents are. We don't know if she has a sibling that's even anything like Thor. She hasn't she didn't react at all when 
when Loki happened to say Frigga's name, which I know that she doesn't remember her mother, but you would think that she might remember that. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I, I don't know how to tell you, but also the show just, it, the show cannot possibly make it any clearer. I mean, down to the point where, you know, there's a point where Mobius refers to her as another Loki, and he, and Loki very sternly goes, her name was Sylvie, because he thinks she's been pruned at that point. And all of the all of the interviews, you know, Michael Waldron has really only been has been the only person, and mind you, you know, he doesn't even phrase it in like a "Wow, isn't that weird?" or you know, or "fucked up" sort of way. He's the only person involved in this show who's actually referred to it straight up as him coming to love a version of himself. Everybody else has been pretty emphatic on, "Oh yeah, but you know, she's Sylvie." So I actually have some uh, slipped quotes from uh, the head writer Michael Waldron from. Uh marvel.com and I quote it started as a blossoming friendship and then for the first time they both feel a twinge of oh could this be something more what is this I'm feeling these are two beings of pure chaos that are the same person falling in love with each other and that's a straight up and down branch exactly the sort of thing that would terrify the TVA he then goes on to say Sylvie is him, but she's not him. They've had such different life experiences. So just from an identity perspective, it was interesting to dig into that. When Loki meets Sylvie, he's inspired solely by curiosity. He keeps asking her questions because he wants to see if his experience was also her experience. And I think they both realize that while they're the same, they're not the same. Again, really... Yeah, I mean, really strongly with the whole, you know... The fact is, is that, of course... Sylvie's had to become ruthless and destructive, but, you know, the motivations for that are, in a narrative sense, a lot purer than anything Loki has ever done before this show, especially in this timeline. You know, we do eventually see that he does have the capacity for, like, genuine and literal self-sacrifice, and that, you know, deep down he does care, but... The fact is, is that no matter how many Minutemen she's actually, you know, had to literally burn through in some cases... Sylvie, you know, she she wants to live. She's been on the run her entire life, which is, again, probably a good thousand years or so, just trying to get by, trying to exist. You know, it, that's, that's the kind of innocence that he sees in her. Something that this, um, that this show also really laid out to me, and, it, you know, it immediately brought a couple of other examples into my head, Although it's it's a very very specific type of scene now that I think about it, um, is I, I kind of ended up realizing I am a huge sucker for the idea of a conversation between two people as the world or their world or in this case where they are is about to end, and one of them basically reassures the other who feels like a gigantic failure and like nothing they did ever mattered that there's so much more than that. And, and that, you know, and regardless of what anybody else thinks, that if anybody is actually there to remember them, that, you know, that, that, you know, they're proud to have known them and that they, they see a lot that they really can't see in themselves in them. Um, and I, I'd initially put this together because, um, you know, I've, I've alluded on the show to two of my other big uh, fandoms being Watchmen and the first season of The Terror. And at one point, it, it really just kind of hit me like a bolt on the out of the blue that, you know, there's the scene with uh, 
Laurie and Dr. Manhattan on Mars where, you know, she figures out that, you know, she's actually the comedian's daughter, the comedian who had previously tried to sexually assault her mother. Her mother ended up, whether it was forgiveness or a moment of weakness or whether, or maybe the sexual assault had just spoiled some simmering tension between them and made it so that it was never going to be able to turn into the healthy relationship it could have in, in another timeline, no Loki jokes intended. And, you know, at this point, considering that she's also pretty sure that the world is about to end a nuclear war, everything seems futile to her. Her entire existence feels like a bad joke. And Dr. Manhattan tells her that it actually just makes the unlikeliness of your existence that much more beautiful. You know, this, this particular circumstance came together and it made you. And he, he compares it to alchemy. And he does extend this to, like, the entirety of human life eventually and it's and it's a big changing point for him as well and you know and I it hit me all of a sudden to compare that to a very similar scene in episode eight of the first season of the terror which you know you have uh you have commander Fitzjames finally admitting that you know all of his bluster and you know general showiness and everything has been you know psychologically trying to make up for the fact that he was an unwanted, illegitimate child. He doesn't even know who his mother was. He was, you know, adopted out at such an early age that he doesn't really remember. And that everything has basically just been running from who he was. And uh, Captain Crozier, who is actually like the protagonist, and who has, you know, been becoming a much warmer, more leaderly figure the whole time. You know, we've really watched a lot of growth from him you know, puts his hands on his shoulders and is just like, okay, but that, you know, taking advantage of political opportunities that was offered you, you know, that's, that's just getting lucky, you know, I don't see you as useless or a fool or anything that you think that you are. And, you know, and, and notably that's been frequently cited as being one of the most incidentally, like romantically charged scenes of that entire show. And that's really the same feeling I got out of Loki and Sylvie thinking they're about to die on Lamentus One. Mm-hmm. I th- it's it's very thematically related. I think even though at this point it's two people who have accepted it and they don't need any reassurance for each other, but it also really reminded me of um, you know Jin and Cassian deciding to just hold each other on the beach in Rogue One as as you know they're about to That's be killed by the Death Star. That's what it reminded me of. Oh my god! Yeah. I was figuring out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that. It, it also has a lot of overlap with that, of them just deciding to, to be there and, you know, hold each other as the end comes. Like, that was, that's also very resonant, but it's, it's mostly the conversation that really struck me as, like, wow, this is a very particular kind of scene, but it's one of those things where it, like, you know, in all of the examples I've mentioned, it's done so well that, like, you know, there's got to be some kind of trope for this. I know that, uh, I know that, you know, you're better than you think you are is already a trope name, but the specifics of this kind of scene and the feeling of impending doom feels really important to the, to the specific kind of, I mean, there technically was one of those in Chernobyl as well. Now that Jared Harris is really good at that, I guess. (laughs) Um, but I, I've only seen that once because Chernobyl was an incredible piece of television, but it's also something I've only ever been able to bring myself to watch once. It was absolutely harrowing. 
I mean, there's also Toy Story 3, so to lighten the mood a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't, I, oh, oh, I know, well, okay, but that one feels a little bit more like that goes back to the, um, the Jin and Cassian angle on it. Like, you know, there's not the, I feel, they weren't, like, talking about how, you know, well, for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, thing it, it it really goes back to the Jin and Cassian angle. I mean, there's various facets of this. It's just it made me realize that it's just it's fascinating what applying the impending doom in the sense that the world on some level is about to end. I mean, of course, you know, the world is not actually ending in the terror. It's really just that their expedition is slowly dying off. But it might as well be the end of the world for them. So, uh. When it comes to the dynamic between uh, Loki and Sylvie, I'm actually reminded of uh, a section I wrote in my uh, fanfiction Unworthy, uh, now available at <laughs> archiveofrone.com. <laughs> um, so, when Darcy asks Loki just why are you why are you drawn to me? Like, what is it about me who's so painfully ordinary? And he says, I see so much of myself in you, only you still have innocence left. I want to make sure that you keep that for as long as possible and never feel the despair I did. It would be so pitiable if you were ever to feel the hate I did. It's exhausting and drains you like a parasite until there's nothing left. So yeah, that's kind of like how I see, uh, how I see his thoughts for Sylvia. Oh, yeah, and, and honestly, the way that you just phrased that makes me think of one of the most, uh, one of the most criticized moments in uh, Rebecca, although I actually, um, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge Maxim de Winter apologist, I just want you guys to know, it's made very, very clear by people who aren't Maxim in that book that, uh, that Rebecca was horrible, like, it's, it's literally not just his word against everybody else saying she was wonderful, there's a lot of clues there, but anyway, the, the moment where he tells his, uh, where after he's confessed all of this to his second wife and, you know, she just loves him more because now there's no secrets between them. Um, he looks at her kind of sadly and notices that she doesn't have that innocence in her face anymore. And it, you know, and it kind of saddens him because he feels like he took that from her. So that almost feels like, like almost the inverse of what you were talking about, but it's, it's, it feels very emotionally relevant. And then while they're having this moment, the Nexus event actually begins at the moment where their hands touch, where she actually gently rubs her hand along Loki's forearm. That's when it starts, that's when it really starts firing off. You, you know, you start seeing it and it looks, it looks like when you have, you know, a bar graph of just, you know, unstoppable growth or whatever. I, I don't know how you want to phrase that. Yes, I'm sure there were multiple unstoppable growths, if you get my doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Not at that point. They were about to die. Oh my God. <laughs> well, what better place then? <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, I, that also, you know, the only show that, um, only the only Broadway show that Maureen and I have actually seen together was uh, was Hades Town, and despite the fact that this doesn't actually have a whole lot to do with Hades Town, other than the mythological overtones and the what's becoming an increasingly obvious uh, theme of you know love being the thing that that tears a corrupt empire down. 
Okay, so who wants to hear my, my big theory for going further into the series? I because knew. at this point, we've had a lot of theories that have been uh, proven and disproven, and I, I want to... I have a big one. Yeah. I have a big theory. And that is... I would not be surprised of... Oh, you know what? We might have to finish this in a couple days because the family just got... Oh, two right days later. Okay, no I'm sure he can have more notes since then. <laughs> Two days later. Well, uh, for those of you listening at home, there was a bit of a time shift of our own when recording this. <laughs> um, and probably, as you heard, like the most perfectly timed interruption we possibly could have had. <laughs> the nice Norwegian parents for whom I was working on Saturday night got home literally as I was about to say my my big theory about the show. Which now, actually, now that they released some preview footage of the next episode, I I now feel even more confident in this guess, whether or not it's true. At, at the very least, I figure if it turns out that it's not true, it was, it's, it was at least a good theory. And it's at least the kind of thing that I can imagine people writing fanfiction about where it actually is the case. <laughs> and what is fanfiction if not a variant timeline? Ah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> So my my big theory, um, I I'm starting to wonder if if Renslayer is in fact a Loki variant. Ooh, that would be a big bombshell. You know, I mean, it does have some of the same overtones, I guess, to the big twist at the end of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Sorry for spoilers, but the movie's literally older than I am. Being, um, you know, that Judge Doom is a tomb. You know, I, I mean, it is sort of along those lines, but at the same time, I also think that, you know, there would be an actual implied um, and possibly eventually made explicit, like, actual character journey that reflects on our Loki if she actually was. And I say that because, well, for one thing, she does seem to have something against Lokis in particular. There, you know, I know that we've got the the running theory now that Sylvie was, um, that Sylvie was targeted as a variant, basically literally just for being too good to be a Loki. You know, she, everything about her pointed to her being like a sweet little girl who was, you know, probably going to end up a big hero. And, um, and the fact is, is that, you know, regardless of what she's had to do to survive at this point, like functionally speaking, she still is like, I, I think that's the, uh, that's the really striking thing about Sylvie is that now that you know what her deal is, she does not come off like a bad person, like at all <laughs> compared to, compared to our Loki. But basically his whole thing was, you know, essentially trying to, you know, eliminate the frost giants in order to be, you know, more as guardian than anybody. And, you know, and I feel like there was a certain degree of, you know, if the frost giants don't exist, if that's not a thing anymore, you know, then I can just go back to being myself. So would you say then that uh, Ravana, if she is indeed a Loki variant, she has a similar sort of drive of like, I have to be, like, I have to get rid of like anyone else who stands directly in my way? Not even necessarily in her way, but also... You know, if she becomes the ultimate arbiter of order in the universe, 
then she's, you know, shed the fact that she's technically an embodiment of chaos because that's kind of what they've suggested Lokis are, is that they're different timelines, personifications of chaos, which means, again, they don't all necessarily have the same DNA. <clears throat> um, <laughs> Strategic I'm sorry. Cough. I'm, I'm, I'm so tired of this. I'm so tired. <laughs> like I said, folks, it's been another two days, and, you know, I saw the DNA argument again. And, you know, and, 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 you know, this morning somebody was pointed out like, yeah, well, you know, Loki can shapeshift. And I'm just like, okay, so are we now officially at the point of insisting that all of the Lokis are in fact, you know, a skinny white man who has shapeshifted? Like, like, are we really getting to that point now? <laughs> Jesus Christ. That is super, that is Reed Richards level of stretching you're doing right now, folks. It's, well, I mean, and also it's just, you know, they've... <laughs> You know, I not to put too fine of a point on it, but you know they, you know, not only is there you know a crocodile, which is so clearly not <laughs> the same, you know, which is so clearly not the same level of of DNA on a level that is just absolutely goddamn ludicrous. But you know, on you know on a human level, and even in a situation where yeah, they're you know, it's not ruling out similar parentage or anything. But the fact is, is that they gave us a black Loki who's also a Thor. <laughs> yeah like like Chew on you know, that <laughs> like you know i i don't know how much more clearly they can communicate to you that that you know that this is a type of person rather than all being the same person yeah <laughs> the type of person that you know we now can pretty fairly guess actually you know can occupy one of the other archetypical roles you know considering again you know, boastful Loki appears to also be a Thor. Implying that that is the reason why he was sent to the reject pile. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, so if, is, you know, forget rejecting being a frost giant, especially because now that I think about it, this really raises the question of, you know, is Sylvie even actually a frost giant? You know, I, I saw somebody, I saw somebody positioning the idea that, it might have actually been that she was an orphaned human baby who was actually the one that Odin adopted after the, um, after the battle in Norway. And that that, and that, you know, that the Laufey daughter thing might've actually just been the assumption. Perhaps, but just on like a, uh, film student level, uh, hello, uh, <laughs> when Loki is trying to confess his feelings for Sylvie, both of them are bathed in this, like, really strong blue light, making their skin look completely blue. And it's like, I know the show is done by people who know exactly what they're doing. Like, they clearly understand a cinematic language. And in the past, like, we've seen, whenever we've seen Loki at his most vulnerable, he's always had his skin bathed in a blue light. So I just like the idea of, like, that lingering shot of two people at, uh, at, like, uh, their weakest point, just really having nothing but each other. And they're both, like, literally, like, uh, the colors of, like, uh, their deepest selves, so to speak. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think a lot of the, you know, her being a human baby theory came from the fact that all things considered her magic is much witchier in the sense 
of what we have seen from literal witches in the MCU at this point. True, that, but... I think that was the main basis of comparison. But, I mean, it's not like we don't know that Frost Giants can learn magic. Oh yeah, no, no, I'm not, I'm not ruling it out, I'm just saying that this was a plausible theory that was also laid out just to, to, you know, to back up the whole identical DNA thing being absolute bull... I mean, you know, we don't even know if they have DNA, my god! Like... <laughs> You know, I, you know, I, you, I have literally seen, and, and honestly, I feel like this makes a lot of sense considering that these were, you know, developed by societies that still had incest taboos. You know, I can't tell you the amount of like, you know, Greek mythology based, uh, books and stuff that I've read that literally hand waves it by saying, well, you know, the incest taboo doesn't really exist among gods because, you know, they don't have DNA. Now, mind you, I know that there was a very strong incest taboo, you know, among, like, you know, the Norse pantheon and what we still have of their, um, of, like, the surviving myths and everything. So I'm not going so, I'm not going all the way to the direction of being like, it, you know, incest literally doesn't matter in this story because <laughs> it does. What I'm saying is, is that this is not incest. So I've known for quite some time uh, the obvious reasons why Loki is attracted to Sylvie, because uh, she see he sees uh, an innocence in her and a lack of uh, the total darkness that he felt over the course of the Avengers. But then I asked myself, well, what would Silky see in Loki? What would draw her to him? And re-watching the episode for like the third time, he spent his whole life in Asgard. He was still accept. he was like welcomed as the prince he was. And it's like, sh he represents the very life that was stolen from her that she should have had. And then the uh, cogs in my brain started moving around and I realized, oh my God, that's their, that's really what makes the ship work because Loki sees in Sylvie, here's what my past could have been, and Sylvie sees in Loki, this is what my future should have been. Yeah, which also, you know, I don't know if the show is ever going to go into this, but at the same time, <laughs> it does, it does really raise the, the image of, you know, at some point when all of this is over and they've had a chance to calm down, of him inevitably having a moment of complaining about always being in Thor's shadow and her just shoving him off the couch. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And possibly, given, given you know, no matter how much she cares for him, possibly even teasing him about, like, well, maybe if you weren't such a little weirdo. <laughs> we were having a text conversation a day ago about how, like, the most traumatic... Uh, event that completely changed uh, Sylvie's life happened when she was like 10 and Loki's big <laughs> traumatic event happened when he was like 27 <laughs> <laughs> I mean you know you know it, it kind of brings back to what we'd been talking about a while ago with you know when at first I was just like well, I, you know, and I realized that the show kind of managed to neatly sidestep this with Sylvie's entire backstory now. But something that had occurred to me repeatedly was just, well, I don't know if, you know, if a young, if, you know, if, if Loki had, you know, I, 
I guess on the show there does seem to be an implication that Sylvia is a cis woman. Mm-hmm. So, so for for the purposes of talking about the show, I'll I'll put it in that framework. You know, <laughs> I I'd said a number of times that I felt like if Loki had grown up as a cis girl, things would have been a lot easier for him socially in an Asgardian context, and I almost feel like the show has kind of validated that now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I definitely believe that. That you know, Loki, <laughs> Loki growing up as a as a cis girl leads to, you know, whatever, however much of, like, a little goth baby she clearly <laughs> was. The fact is, is that, you know, she's happy and well-adjusted and loves Asgard, and, you know, if she had a Thor to compete with, she probably didn't actually think of him as competition. No. She probably thought very much of just, like, well, that's Thor's niche, and I got mine. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, that was some, and that was actually something that I had thought would have been a major snarl in Loki being a cis girl from the very start. And, you know, whenever people want to act like that would have turned out exactly the same. I don't know if you heard that very cute little noise. My cat just sneezed by the microphone. Aww. Hey, Coco. (laughs) But, um, you know, so they seem to have kind of implied that with Sylvie at this point, and that being the entire reason that the TVA kidnapped her and destroyed her life in the first place was she was simply too well-adjusted and too happy to be a Loki. Yeah, and it goes back to, uh, in, like, episode two, there was a lot of emphasis on Loki just, like, immediately scoffing off, uh, chasing his variants, saying, well, this is clearly the inferior Loki. Like, there's no way in hell that uh, the greatest Loki, whoever Loki, is anyone but me. And once he actually meets her... By the end of this episode, he comes to realize, oh, this is my superior in pretty much yeah, every way. Yeah, no, she's, you know, she's, you know, again, it's, it really is just, you know, she's had to be ruthless, but that's different from having to be a bad person. Mm-hmm. And he has, as has, as has been shoved in his face several times, like, you know, he is in many ways a bad person. He appears to be learning and, you know, already getting better on that, but, you know, Sylvie might not be nice, but she's good. Yeah, and it hits entirely differently now remembering uh, those scenes from the Avengers of Thor just trying to get to Loki, telling him, we can end this right now, you can come home with me, just come home, and Sylvie has never had that happen to her. I mean, her home literally doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. But also, you know, it really does, even knowing that the, even knowing that the Minutemen themselves are variants, it really does put it in context, though, when you think about how, you know, originally we're, we're shown her, you know, having to deal really brutally with Minutemen and you're like, oh my God, what an awful Loki. And then it's like, and then you look back on it, it's just like, Oh yeah, she's um she's only doing this with Minutemen. Mm-hmm. You know she's she's very much doing the equivalent of you know dealing only with the cops and not endangering anybody else. Which <laughs> it, well, I mean I'm I'm completely serious. I mean there's there's very very strong you know all cops are bastards 
you know, subtext. I, why do I say subtext? It, it's there. It's in right, the text. It's the, the fucking show. text. <laughs> it is literally it is literally there in the text. And down to the fact that it's actually engaging with the fact that, you know, I've you know, all cops are bastards is actually, you know, typically broken down as the role of the cop is to be a bastard. Yeah. Being a cop is is, you know, is being a bastard. And so, you know, it still works with the the TVA because as we're finding out, they are literally mind wiping people into this bastardness. <laughs> like that's yeah. a big part of it. And so, you know, it really does, you know, <laughs> even if Sylvie is out, well, you know what? Not only is she out there lighting people on fire, but then she's like also erasing the timeline that that happened in. Mm-hmm. I just, re- I just realized we're seeing this from an exterior perspective. So the point is, is that, you know, Sylvie is actually, if anything, she's kind of going out of her way to only deal with the TVA in this regard. Well, yeah, she doesn't really have any enemies but them. Yeah, yeah. And unlike our Loki, she's actually very good at remembering who her actual enemies are, (laughs) which goes along with what she's mentioned about her focus on the mission. Ah, that's right. You know, she's... (sighs) It's, it, it really is astonishing that despite how much trauma she's gone through, how, like, generally speaking, relative to her situation, she is extraordinarily well-adjusted. As, yeah. as opposed to our Loki, who is just, you know, as my friend Anne put it, he's a feral, he's a wet feral cat lashing out at everything. And she's not, <laughs> is the thing. You know, she's only lashing out at the people who harmed her. Which brings, which, but that brings me back to the Renslayer theory, which got us off on this whole tangent again, because um, a big, you know, it, it kind of comes down to, you know, the idea that she, if, if she is a Loki variant, which I think is at least plausible, I, you know, if it turns out she's not, it's cool. But the reason I find this plausible is, again, you know, if you compare her to our Loki in, you know, his first appearance, just this overwhelming sense of if I get rid of this other thing, then I don't have to be it anymore. Yeah. As I was typing notes, uh, this morning for the continuation of this show, uh, I realized, uh, considering her history with chasing down Sylvie, it really is like a female version of the dynamic of uh, Valjean and Javert of like yeah. one just yeah. wants to be left alone and not hurt anyone, and the other one has just dedicated their life to like pursuing them as like their one great purpose and obsession. And of course, like the tragedy of their character is that they deep down they're pretty much the same thing that they claim to hate so much. Yeah, yeah. For you know it. I know that it kind of gets passed over in one line in the musical. The The original Les Miserables book goes into a decent amount of detail, but for those of you listening at home, Javert, the, the main cop antagonist of the book, his whole thing is the fact that his parents were criminals. He was literally born in prison, and he's been dealing with that shame for his entire life to the point of becoming an extraordinarily rigid and unyielding uh, officer of the law. He has very, very little room for interpretation. In fact, the only time that he actually seems to hold himself accountable 
is when he briefly comes under the impression that he's arrested the wrong person, in which case he is. And when that happens, he essentially demands to be treated as a criminal himself. And Valjean, who is, you know, at that point still in disguise and not known to be a, a former criminal to him, is kind of just like, my dude, calm down. And it's it's intense enough that at the end when his um, when his ideology breaks down and he realizes that it's untenable for him at this point, he ends up actually writing a long letter detailing several examples of desperately needed police reform, leaving it with the chief chief of police, and then he literally goes and kills himself. Like that is that is how this man is functioning at this point. And so I can, I mean, honestly, I can kind of, now that you say that, I can really see Renslayer operating on similar lines. Because how, if you were meant to be a god of mischief and bringer of chaos, then of course, if you want to rebel against that fate, what else would you become but the ultimate uh, overseer of the strictest type of order in the universe? Including preventing any other versions. I mean, at this point, we don't know how old she actually is. Although, you know what? At the same time, considering that the TVA exists outside of time, it honestly doesn't matter how old she is. She might be from the far future. And she might just, you know, be dealing with however much shame she's dealing with at realizing what she is. That at this point, she's just like, I, she can't live with this. And she has to undo the whole thing. Right Which, down to the fact that she, especially this episode, she was just, she was just constantly lying to Mobius and just manipulating him and just like. Oh God, that's things. an excellent point. That that is an incredibly excellent point, and it. God, that is yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I didn't only... even think I didn't even think about it like that. I was I mean, I was kind of just thinking in terms of like, well, you know, plot wise, what would make the most sense? And, you know, and also, you know, it's it's also the kind of thing where I just I really hope that they didn't cast Gugu and Botham Ra just to play, you know, essentially the head of the, the time travel CIA. Like, I really hope that there's a bigger purpose to this. Oh, I'm sure there is. But uh which also got, went back to, like, me realizing, oh, wait, in this episode, Mobius had his most uh, Loki-esque moment of having, like, a little breakdown of, like, realizing, oh, everything I thought that was true about myself is a sham. And now we have to, and now we're going to, like, watch him try and uh, react to that. Oh, this adds so much more context as well to the fact that, uh, that, uh, Ravana pruning Loki was framed exactly like Loki killing Coulson. Oh, yes. Or with all, or, you know, or with... Literally Orion. backstabbing him. Yeah, I was going to say, in all of the examples in the in the early show, you know, because you stab people in the back, well, fine, I won't do it again. <laughs> Foreshadowing. <laughs> Which, you know, but come to think of it, though, other than... Other than like you know running away from uh, from Mobius and having his little field trip with Sylvie, like come to think of it, he hasn't done a lot of backstabbing at that after that point, has he? No. Well, that's he actually kept his word. What the hell? <laughs> that's what makes that's what makes the app 
That's what makes the scene with him talking to Mobius just so painful. It's because he really is trying to be honest, but he's been so deceitful in the past, like the boy who cried wolf. It's just too little too late for Mobius. And by the time it finally does hit him, it's like, oh, there's not much he can do about that. And also the, the boy who cried wolf comparison here is particularly striking considering that you know, so much of that story hinges on him having, you know, the boy has repeatedly lied to the same people versus Mobius just knows he's a liar. Mm. So, I mean, and not to, I know that's not a huge distinction, but story-wise it is an interesting one that, you know, it's, it's almost more that he's briefed and prepped himself on the fact that this guy lies to the point where it kind of leaves him unprepared for the fact that as soon as he's interacting with him, he's actually telling the truth because he trusts Mobius and he likes Mobius. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I know that at this point the show is, is, you know, definitely appears to be aiming toward the, the him and Sylvie, him and Sylvie love story. But, you know, I, I do think that, you know, we can't really neglect the vibes there with Mobius. Oh, I, I totally get that. <laughs> and for that matter, the vibes between Mobius and Ravana up until a certain point. Like, I mean, that there were a couple of points when I'm watching this and I'm just like, are these two amicable exes? It's There were definitely some scenes where it was framed that way. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, or alternatively, that, that one absolutely batshit alternate... Uh, Watchmen script that heavily implies that Dan is essentially Adrian's kept boy. <laughs> oh no! Sam Ham script. I'm not going to go into too much detail about this. It's it's an unproduced Watchmen script from 1989. It is absolutely bananas. It has its own TV tropes page. If if you want to know <laughs> just how off the rails this goes, you can just you can look it up yourself. But there's actually a point where Dan calls Adrian and talks to him about all this stuff that he doesn't, you know, he, at that point, not knowing that Adrian is actually behind most of it, which actually feels very relevant to this episode. <laughs> and Adrian straight up pauses and is just like, well, if you need money, you know I've always taken care of you. And it's like, what the oh. hell is going on here? And now to put a coin in the mentioned Watchmen on this podcast jar. <laughs> I've mentioned Watchmen before. You know, I was talking about Watchmen earlier in the episode, like, I know it was two days ago for us, but, you know, with the whole Laurie on Mars bit actually having quite a lot in common with, you know, Loki and Sylvie on Lamentus 1 waiting to die. Yeah. I mean, that's also, that was also the longest time I mentioned the terror, and that was actually relevant. I'm very proud of myself for that. I still think we need to have a mention Watchmen jar that we can put coins in and mention Broadway musicals so we can put coins in because we're gonna we can just save up for Disneyland that way don't you think oh yeah yeah because at this point Maureen wants us to just like go and interview the Disneyland Loki <laughs> we're, we're gonna call it like a research trip I don't I don't know we're just gonna stand there with it it's <laughs> yeah it's just full Sarah Koenig I god we're just I'm just imagining <laughs> <laughs> just it's just some kind of billy on the street <laughs> standing there just holding a microphone out oh my god <laughs> but yeah no point is, is and especially with um maureen now finding she found on the internet a theory that 
you know, what's going on in that final scene, the the post-credit one is actually, you know, the Lokis are being banished to a Loki dimension, which just makes me think of Punches from the Punch dimension. (laughs) (laughs) Did you, did you ever see Punches from the Punch dimension? Did you, I I don't. Maybe once and I forgot about it. Oh God, it's. I don't even know how accurate this is or if this was just like some ultimate universe particular dumbness or whatever. But it was something to do with like, like, you know, I'd always assumed that, you know, Cyclops from the X-Men, I kind of always assumed that like the thing, you know, the rays coming out of his eyes, I kind of just thought that like, oh, his body makes the rays. And because, you know, it's a very new evolution, he can't control it yet. But no, apparently, at least according to some writers, it's actually that his eyes are a portal to another dimension made entirely of energy. (laughs) And it's constantly escaping through his eyes. And then I guess there was just some kind of discussion board at one point was talking about this. is like, well, what kind of energy would that be? And it's like, it's punches from the punch dimension. And now we've got, now we've got, you know the you know we've got the the loki in the loki dimension and you know and it's it's always 7 30 a.m there because you know it's a pocket dimension for wizards and shit it's the island of misfit loki's <laughs> i want to see gugu mbatha ra wearing wearing a loki costume i you know imagine if they finally break out the the lady loki costume or something based on it and she actually is the one that gets to wear it how boss would that be oh man and just imagine like another like a one big fight between ravana and sylvie so it's lady loki versus other lady loki (laughs) it's you know it's like i kept saying with you know, the whole, as they appeared to be keeping Richard E. Grant's casting that much more secret as it goes on, you know, you don't, it felt like, you know, when people had had that kind of association between him and uh, MCU Loki to begin with, you know, the whole with Nolan I joke, it it really felt like, okay, you know what, They, they can't possibly be doing this without some hidden purpose behind it. You know, well, because also, you know, if she's if, if if in this case it turns out that she's not Kang's girlfriend, which I would, I would honestly find it very disappointing if that's all she is. Well, I mean, I would say, I mean, it's clear that by now that's clearly not all she is. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, no, that that was what I was saying is that like at this point, it you know, it might be that she's just like his chief lieutenant or something, even if she is also his lover. Which, you know, you know what. Honestly, that would be like the sexiest thing the MCU's ever done. I have to go for it. Um, <laughs> this is a famously sexless franchise. That that would be like the hottest possible thing they've ever done with it. Um, so if it turns out that you know she's his chief enforcer slash lover, you know having Ravana be that relative to to Kang would you know it would be another strong Loki parallel which is another kind of thing that really kind of makes me hope she is one yeah but you know but and also you know you you pointed out that not only is the um is the moment where she prunes him really you know not only does that have a lot in common with Coulson's murder but it also looks a lot like uh Vision's death Mm mm-hmm and, you know, so that's intentional, which, you know, and that also was the one that had 
you know, the antagonist of that one turning out to be the same kind of person as the protagonist. Yeah. Yeah. So that'll definitely be interesting. You You know, you had the literal, you're not the only magical girl in town reveal with, with Agatha. (laughs) I mean, I kind of doubt Ravana is going to get a catchy theme song, which honestly, you know what? But she should. (laughs) She should. She really should. I mean, I, I kind of wish I'm, I know that we technically had a musical number. I really would like another one. Yes. Just like they had, Disney has a Christian Anderson and Robert Lopez's <laughs> numbers on speed dial. Like just get them in for like one quick episode. How- oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they did just, apparently they did just finish like the post on the final episode a couple of days ago. Oh, the, oh, so we never know. <laughs> We never know. And also, I, you know, part of me also still wonders if the early use of holding out for a hero and the fact that they are clearly building up to, oh my God, oh my God, I just had another, like, I I just had another one of those, like, Jimmy Neutron brain blast things where I suddenly put something together. You mentioned the whole, you know, Loki's fighting in the Loki dimension thing. Mm -hmm. You know, what if, what if, like, the, the local, like... What if instead of it being completely a variant timeline, what if it's just, you know, what if the whole President Loki thing, what if he actually is, like, the corrupt president of the Loki dimension? That just might be. (laughs) That, I mean, you know, all that time that we thought that he had, like, a fancy shoulder ornament or something on it, it turns out that it's just that his jacket is ripped and the stuffing is coming out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, like, (laughs) I mean... Part of me kind of suspects that it might actually be just another timeline and that it's actually going to turn out to be almost another quick riff kind of thing, almost like the, um, the D.B. Cooper thing turned out to be. <laughs> yeah, I could, I can, I feel like that could only be like a very quick one-off joke. Okay, haha, we had a good laugh, now on to the next scene. Yeah, or if it just kind of... Maybe even some kind of, like, heist to bring in reinforcements where our Loki, who's already had so much character development, has to pop over and, like, basically, you know, convince his, uh, you know, this other version that just clearly stayed and decided another attack for taking over the world. Ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> like, conv- convincing his, um, convincing the, the Mongolian army that he raised, <laughs> Hold up. I'm having I'm having my own uh, Jimmy Neutron brain blast right now. <laughs> what if by uh, episode six, w- like we get this cabin in the woods act three climax of just all the variant Lokis just raising hell upon the TVA? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so since uh, the very last scene of this episode was uh the all the variants of loki and we are definitely going to see more of them in the next episode i feel like a good way to wrap up would be like okay how many more variants are there what do they want and what do we think uh what more versions do we think we're going to see of them i mean you know i i don't i mean other than you know really hoping that at some point we get to see ravana in you know the classic lady loki costume when it was actually sif's body um i mean they did in the comics very recently reintroduce you know 
the idea of an actually, you know, presumably cis feminine Loki from, uh, you know, another timeline, you know, if you're on Twitter lately, you might've actually seen some of the comic panels going around of, um, both her and the main timeline Loki, like high-fiving and shouting, Lokis are the best. What's better than two, within a Loki? Two Lokis. If I find something better, I'll destroy it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But, um, one thing I will say is that, you know, I, I spent so much of this show gearing up for the idea of the older Loki played by Richard E. Grant to be the big bad of this, which at this point I truly don't think he is. Like, why would he be there and offering to help this guy, our Loki, if that was the case? In which case, oh my God, I am so goddamn excited for older Loki to basically be the Captain Barbosa of this series. (laughs) (laughs) I I just, I, I just... I, I am just so glad that, that instead of, you know, I was all prepared for the big bad thing. And it's funny because, you know, I, I realized that now I've kind of cycled around to hoping that the big bad is another Loki. <laughs> but now I'm just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Old asshole comics Loki is there. <laughs> but he, but he's, I guess, you know, but they put him in a situation where he might very well be in, like, the weird uncle category and this absolutely delights me i am so ready to have this character in my life i just had an image pop into my head and assuming disney doesn't like send me to the tva i am totally going to like see if i can like make merchandise of it of uh the three variant Lokis with their height and physical differences posing like uh the hitchhiking ghost in the haunted mansion (laughs) oh my god that that even works because um boastful loki or you know the problem is is that i keep wanting to call him thorky and and that's that's not what that word means (laughs) i which almost makes me wonder if that's literally why they call him boastful loki perhaps You know, but but I realized you can even pose boastful Loki holding his hammer over his shoulder like um like the one guy's carpet bag. Yes. <laughs> or or not no, not the carpet bag. The carpet bagger guy is holding it, but the you know, the the one the tall the tall skinny one actually is like holding Ezra. He's actually in some of the pictures anyway, he's holding a sack over his shoulder. And the, oh my god. Oh my god. Sylvie uh tight rope rope walking across from the Loki Gator. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. See now now you're speaking my extraordinarily niche language. <laughs> you know, the only the only reason at this point that I am like I, I'm really bummed right now that I can't just figure out how, you know, hot weather be damned, let's go to Anaheim like in like you know, August or September is, you know, I want to go to the Haunted Mansion when it's the Haunted Mansion and not Nightmare Before Christmas. You know, I like the Nightmare Before Christmas. I miss the Haunted Mansion. (laughs) But at the same time, I'm like, they better, they better put another Loki out there. They better, you know, I also, I really hope at this point that if they, you know, kind of have to go back to using the more, you know, generic character interaction style, 
Because what they've been doing at Disneyland for the past few weeks, or actually at California Adventure, which is the other park in the complex, um, is that they have had their their Loki performers or face characters, which is what they're called when they're essentially an actor in a costume and not in a mascot suit. The face characters have actually been wearing outfits that evolve with the show. Like the first couple of weeks that the show aired, they had him, or the first week it was out, they had him there in his um, in his TVA jumpsuit, and then after that, they put him in his uh, they put him in his suit with a variant on the back of the, of his blazer. And so, I'm kind of hoping that maybe if they have to go back to a more generic Loki after this, that maybe his um, that maybe what they'll end up doing is that this is a Disneyland variant. <laughs> totally happen yeah yeah that it's just that this is a loki from a timeline (laughs) who hangs out at disneyland so uh i feel like it's worth mentioning that uh before we sign off uh we are going to do a special double header episode on july 14th because i will not be able to record at our usual time since i will be on vacation in iceland yeah, I, you know, there is a chance that if I happen to come up with some kind of, like, homebrew filler episode of some something really stupid, maybe I, I can put that up as an interim, but we're probably just going to leave it at the doubleheader. Yeah, so stay tuned until the 14th where we review the final two episodes of Loki Season 1. With Maureen being able to add the extra context of having just gone to uh, Iceland and having experienced the you know the fir- the the teeny tiny domino that leads to you know you have a teeny tiny domino in the front that says you know a, you know the let me restart this sure. I'm sorry especially considering that Maureen will have just come back from Iceland the teeny tiny domino in the front of the pile labeled you know the origins of the Norse pantheon and then the the gigantic slab in the back that's about to fall over is people arguing about whether or not self-cest is, is morally <laughs> acceptable on the internet. Uh, yeah, but needless to say, I will post tons of photos on our official Twitter account of me going at, uh, there's just one cathedral that looks exactly, well, it's clearly the inspiration for the Palace of Asgard in the MCU. Uh, right next to the statue of Leif Erikson, and I'm going to take lots of photos of me with uh, the Golden Circle tour, which is uh, which also played inspiration of like uh, the natural landscape in Avascard in the comics, and of course, hopefully, Cafe Loki will be open, and I will take many a photo with me and my Funko Pops. <laughs> and so I guess I'll I'll leave you, especially since you are like you know all in on Silky at this point. (laughs) I feel like the best image I can leave you with is, you know, also knowing how into, you know, the Will and Elizabeth ship you are. Please imagine them, you know, marrying each other in the middle of a battle because Richard E. Grant Loki is, like, (laughs) shouting the wedding vows at them. And that comes full circle because I remember in an interview, uh, Tom Hilston revealed that the audition that he was the most disappointed and crushed over not booking was Will Turner in the first Pirates of the Caribbean film. Oh my god. (laughs) 
how old was he at the time? Oh my god, he must have only been like 20. I think, no, he was like 23, I think? 22? Well, wait a minute, wait, okay, 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 but, but if it came out in 2003, they had to, he could only have been like 20 or 21, I think. He was oh born, my god! He was born in 81, they, okay, yeah, he would have been 20, 21, probably during the casting. Oh my god, well, you know Same what, Same age then as character. Maybe... You know, I will say that then, you know, it would have been a lot, uh, it would have been a lot less effort to convince the, um, to convince the audience that, you know, Will and Elizabeth were pretty much the same age. I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) I'm stuck on the image of, of, you know, old Loki. (laughs) I'm a little busy at the moment. (laughs) That's something. Uh, that's something for you to draw right there. Yes, I have a lot of drawing to do, so if you will excuse us, we are Maureen and Megan, and we are still burdened with the podcast. Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>